The text for this morning's sermon is Galatians 3, 23 through 29. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, Galatians 3, 23 through 20, 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we come before your word, we ask that you enlighten our eyes and our minds. God, I pray that you use your word to conform us into the image of Christ. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would leave here more thankful for our union with Him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On Friday evening, I had the privilege of being at the rehearsal dinner for uh, Jesse and Kaylee. And... uh, as the night was going on and people were talking and sharing, uh, I had uh, I had my fork in my hand, and there was a glass cup there. And for a moment, I thought, "Well, I should tap the cup." But then I thought, "No, I shouldn't. <laughs> this is the rehearsal dinner. You don't tap cups and make a clinking sound." Until tomorrow. It seems so right on Saturday to tap your cup so that the bride and groom will kiss. And yet, the day before the wedding's gonna happen? Why, you know, there's a reason why we don't tap the cup at rehearsal dinners. The timing would be wrong. Timing matters. Where are you at now in space and time? Where are you at in regards to redemptive history? That's what this sermon's about. This, we're in the middle of Paul's argument, trying to help these brand new believers in southern Galatia realize where they're at, what God has been doing throughout history, and where they're living at this point in time. And we've been over it so many times, but let's just be reminded again. The issue is this. This brand new church that just received Christ, that just had Jesus put up in front of them as the main show, as soon as 
Paul left, false teachers came in called Judaizers. They believed in Jesus. They believed that He was the Messiah, but they wanted to add Moses' law to Jesus in order to become Abraham's children and receive salvation. See, here's the issue. Who is Abraham's children? Because that's where salvation goes. The promises of salvation were given to Abraham. He was promised land, which point towards the new heavens and new earth. He was promised family, which Paul has argued pointed to Jesus Christ, the singular offspring from which all other offspring of Abraham would come. And he promised blessing that from this family, blessing was going to spread across the whole earth. And that blessing culminates in the coming of the Spirit of God to God's people. So who is Abraham's children? The Judaizers say those who trust by faith in Jesus and those who are circumcised according to the law and live according to the law of Moses. And you remember like a math formula, you know, sometimes uh, you'll get like A plus 2 equals 4. So what's A? Well, it's 2. We've all done math formulas like this. And the false gospel is always this. Jesus plus something equals salvation. That's a cult. It may sound like Christianity. It may look like Christianity. Usually it does. But Jesus plus anything equals damnation. Equals no forgiveness for sins. And so Paul is trying to help these churches realize, don't you realize Christ has come? Don't you realize where you're at? Why would you seek to add the law in order to, in order to be saved? Right at the beginning of this letter to these churches where Paul's pleading with them not to leave the one and true Gospel, Right at the beginning, in verse 3, he says this, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us, now get this, from the present evil age. See, it's a temporal argument. Jesus came to end one age and be the dawning of another. Jesus came to deliver us from this past age and bring us into another age. Jesus came to do what the law of Moses could never do. The last few weeks we've been looking at the reason why the Abrahamic covenant is better is because it's a one-way covenant. God said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you a family. It has nothing to do with you fulfilling it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring about salvation. 
With Moses, God said, if you do this, then I'll do this. The problem with that is we're sinners. The law did not have the power to save us. All it could do is be a mirror to make us put our hands over our mouth and say, we are all in big trouble. So that's where we've been. And if you look at uh, point one in your notes, in Christ, so because of your union with Christ, live in light of the new era that is dawned. Look at verse 23. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Now before faith came... Now what is faith here? Faith is simply Jesus. It's not that Old Testament saints weren't always saved by faith in what God has revealed to them to be true. Looking forward to the Messiah, they were. But Paul is using faith here over against the law saying once Jesus came, so he says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned. So just imagine, the old age represented a time when all humanity was imprisoned by this law that they were given. It's a good law, but they couldn't keep it. Therefore, you were constantly sinning. And then after you sinned, you would have to go sacrifice and bring an offering and look forward to God's salvation. It's this prison over and over again. Here's life. I sin. Sacrifice is offered. Priest continually is putting up offerings to God. We were held captive under the law until the coming of faith would be revealed. So you see the language there. There was a time where captivity was there, where imprisonment was there. But when Jesus came, it's a key word there, when it says until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law of God, God's righteous demands of all humanity, imprisons us, finds us guilty, locks us down. Here's why the law is good for us. Because the fundamental problem of man ever since Adam and Eve is the thought, I think I can handle this on my own. I don't think I need to listen to what God says. I think I can do it. I talked about how my two-year-old always says, I do it. I do it. Well, half the things she says that to, she can't do. But that's how we are. We constantly think, well, I can be good enough. I can please God. I can, I can do enough works and then set it before God and, and, and say, there. Receive me because of what I did. Well, the law came to help us realize all these good works that you thought you did, it's actually like filthy rags. 
If you're talking about why I should let you into heaven, the grounds of our salvation, the law shows us that our works can never be the grounds of God being pleased with us. Or God, so much so that He would say, okay, that's good enough. You enter into heaven. You realize the majority of people who believe in God but are yet unconverted are people who think they're getting into heaven because they're not as bad as their neighbor who's a jerk or the criminal. It's the most common thing in the world. Bad people go to hell. Good people go to heaven. The law came and said, you're all bad. You've all rejected God. And you've all sinned. And so what we needed in the kindness of God, God said, you want to know? Those of you who like doing this on your own, here, let me give you a test. See how you do. The law helps us see that we fail. It, it imprisons us. Um, and then in verse 25 it says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Well, look at verse 24. Let, let's look at that first. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now this word guardian might be hard for us to understand, but it was common in Paul's day that every household would have slaves. And one of the slaves' job was to be the guardian of the children until they were old enough to inherit the property and run the show. So, you would have like a full-time babysitter whose job was to teach them to be polite, to be moral, show them what's right and wrong, and, and stand over them. To a child, this guardian was pretty annoying probably. You know? You want freedom. Well, my dad's so-and-so. Well, he put me in charge of you right now. And here's where you're at right now. You're a child, and so you're under my authority. The law was like that for Israel. The law was over top of God's people showing them that you cannot be free on your own. You cannot be free where you're at right now. The law was preparing them for the day when Christ would come where they could grow up into maturity in the sense of uh, salvation history. So before Christ came, God gave the law that's, that's pointing forward as like a shadow of the thing to come. When Christ comes, the fullness has arrived. It's like maturity has come. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. He's saying, look at where you're at. Galatian church, don't you realize Jesus has come? That you're no longer? Why do you want to go put yourself under the babysitter? You're we're going to find out in a moment. You're a son. You've received the inheritance. You're grown up. 
Why are you going to put yourself back under this? It doesn't make any sense. Paul continually, this was an issue he's running into, to the Colossian church uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 16. Here's what he write, or, or wrote. He said, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are all parts of the law. He says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you according to those things. Why? These are shadow. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You know, I remember when I was dating Laura and I was going to school in Sioux Falls. Laura was in uh, uh, Minneapolis uh, at Northwestern College and sometimes I'd have to wait like three weeks to see her and it was like killing me. How foolish would it have been to... It's this beautiful sunny afternoon. I get to her apartment. She's standing outside and she's like this to give me a hug. And I run over and I start rolling around on the ground trying to hug her shadow. Well, Paul says, what are you doing? Do you not realize the substance that's cast the shadow, the law was pointing towards to the thing that has come? Have you really come to see Christ only to roll around after a shadow? You see, this is the point Paul is trying to get across that the guardian was there it was pointing you forward. It was making you not trust in your own salvation, but to look forward to the very thing that's casting that shadow. That's what the law was helpful for. Luther, in speaking of the law, said this in only a way Luther could. He said, therefore, God must have a mighty hammer, which is the law, to crush the rocks and a burning fire in the midst of heaven to overthrow the mountains. That is to crush that stubborn and perverse beast, presumption. Luther says, man always presumes that he's got it. He can take care of it. God gave the law to say, boom, you cannot take care of it. This is why churches have to preach the law. Because even though you've heard it a hundred times, by Tuesday you can start to think that you got it. You don't need to pray anymore. You don't need to live by the Spirit. You know the rules. You're good at keeping rules. That's when the law comes in. Boom! No. You need to know the dawning King who has come and has given you His Spirit so that you can live according to His power. So, let's let's look at this practically. In light of this new age that has dawned, because for those of us who trust in Christ were found in Christ, and He is the one that all history was looking forward to. In light of that, 
Let me ask you this question. Why be legalistic? Why be legalistic? Can the law change anybody? Does the law have power to change a person's heart? You know, it's like if you had a cage which represents the law and you put a lion in it and then you put a lamb right outside the cage, well, the lamb's not going to get eaten. But that cage has not changed the lion's desire to eat the lamb. It's merely pre prevented it from happening. The cage can't change the lion's heart. This gets really practical. As parents, let me ask you a question. Why do I and why do you act surprised when your children sin? Is there any theology in the Bible that teaches that children cannot sin? They can get to that point? Why do we so quickly think, well, if those parents just had better rules, those kids would be more ruly? Oh, really? Since when has the rules had the power to change a heart? They can keep a lion in line. Parents can teach their children to say please and thank you, but that's a whole lot different than a heart that is born again. It gets really practical. In light of the fact that Jesus Christ has come, it should change the way we parent. It should change the way you treat employees. It should change the way you think about what a person really needs. They need the Gospel. Yes, the rules should be there. Parents should have rules, but that's not their ultimate need. So when my children sin, my goal is not to act shocked, but to come to them, show them that God sees this as sin, remind them that Jesus Christ has come, and there's forgiveness in Christ, remind them that I too am a sinner. I'm not surprised at the fact that they do what I do so often. You see, if you know what time it is, where you stand in salvation history, it changes the way you live. Second, in Christ, live in light of your unity as sons. Look at verse 26. For in Christ... So whenever you see those words, it's so easy in the New Testament to overlook them. But remember, everything God is for you, He is for you in Christ. Let me say that again. Everything God is for you, He is for you in Christ. So that when you read your New Testament, if you take a little highlighter, start highlighting in Christ. Almost every promise you start seeing, you're going to see those words. And if you don't see those words, you're going to see words describing union with Christ as the reason why you are being blessed. Look at verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. 
not through the law. The Judaizers are saying, you're sons of God if you're circumcised according to the law of Moses. You can't enter Abraham's family unless you're circumcised like Abraham's children. He's saying, no, for in Christ, you're all sons of God through faith. Numbers 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. So what does this mean? In Christ, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many as were baptized into Christ. So is this talking about water baptism? I think it's both. When you trust by faith in Jesus Christ, that's what verse 26 says, for in Christ you are all sons of God. How? Through faith. There's when you believe. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, so a baptism is a visible representation of your union with Christ. When you are put under the water, what's being demonstrated is Jesus' death is your death. His death for your sins was your death for your sins and you'll never die under the wrath of God. You'll be disciplined by the Lord, but as a father disciplines a son, you'll never die under the judgment of God. We are not under God's judgment as Christians. We're under God's discipline sometimes as Christians. But when Christ died for our sins, we will never be under the judgment of God for our sins because of our union with Christ. As a person's raised up out of the water, His resurrection is our resurrection. His cleansing is our cleansing. It's a picture of union with Christ. So He's saying, as many of you as trusted in Christ, you've been immersed into Christ. And if you've been immersed into Christ by faith, then if Jesus is a son, you all are sons. So he's saying, in Christ, you're all sons. Even so much so, look at verse 28. Neither Jew nor Greek. Well, who's the sons of Abraham that are going to receive salvation? Both Jews and Greeks who trust by faith in Christ. And then there's neither slave nor free. You mean to say that the guy who's a millionaire and has all these slaves, that they're on the same level? They receive the same inheritance? Yep. The Greeks are getting in. The slaves are getting in. They're getting in equal as sons of God with Jesus. There's neither... Are, there is no male nor female. This is a crazy verse on Mother's Day. Mothers, I'm glad to tell you that you're all sons in Christ. Why doesn't he say sons and daughters here? Because in the context, he's talking about the inheritance. And what he's saying is, is women, you're going to receive the same inheritance as men. You're sons in Christ. Firstborn sons receiving fullness of all the benefits. Why? 
because you're found in Christ. There's a lot of evangelical Christians that are called egalitarians. It's a fancy name for saying that after Christ came, there's no distinction in roles anymore. And they point to this verse. They say there's not male nor female anymore. So the woman can be the head of the household. The roles can be reversed. It doesn't matter. If you take that logic to its logical end, then homosexuality isn't wrong anymore, right? Because there's not male or female. That is not what Paul's teaching here. What Paul is teaching in this context, and the reason why we know it is Paul says homosexuality is wrong. And Paul makes a distinction between Greeks and Jews. He says right now there's a hardening on the Jews. The Greeks are coming in. One day... The Jews' hearts are going to be open. A lot of them are going to flood to Christ. Paul still has a distinction in recognizing them, them as different and male and female as different, but the context is this. In Christ, you all receive the inheritance as sons equally. Isn't this amazing? In the church of Christ, there should be the CEO businessman who has the world by the tail being discipled by the janitor at the local school. That's right in the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of man. And in Christ, we're equal sons of God. In Ephesians 2.11, listen how Paul says this, Therefore, remember that at one time, he's speaking to Gentiles here, you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. The Jews looked at him and said, look at the uncircumcision over there by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments. By abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross of Christ or through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near for through him there's your union with Christ we have both access in one spirit to the father you see paul doesn't tell people he doesn't call people to be Christians to be unified. Instead, he tells them, you are unified in Christ. 
He doesn't call the church to be unified. He says, don't you know who you are? Can you separate yourself from Christ as a Christian? Can you separate yourself from other Christians as a Christian? You can live like that. And Paul says, live like who you really are. Unified in one body in Christ. Third, in Christ, live in light of your inheritance as sons. And if you are Christ, look at verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs to the promise. I, just think for a minute, Christians. Just think. Let me read it again. And if you are Christ, so let me ask the question. Are you trusting by faith in Christ? Do you know that you're absolutely in big trouble in light of the law revealing who you are and your only hope of salvation is in Jesus' perfect life, died on the cross for your sins, your only hope is if He gives you His perfect life and you get to give Him your sins. If that's you, then it's you. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You don't need to go get circumcised. Heirs according to the promise. It's the most unbelievable promise in the world. You are not going to receive Abraham's inheritance by working according to the law. You receive it by faith. Do you know how lavish God is for you? Do you have any idea what it means to be sons of God receiving the inheritance of Christ? Have you, have you thought about this before? Here's the practical, here's, here's the practical message. Let me put it this way to you. In light of your union, union with Christ, why be materialistic ever? If you're united with Christ, why ought we ever be captivated by materialism? Let me read Ephesians 2 4 to you and explain. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He just talked about all eternity. And He says if you're saved... You're seated up in the heavens with Christ. And there's immeasurable riches that never quit coming to you in Christ. You, you realize God wants you to have everything? That the Bible says the meek inherit the world? God's going to give you everything. The reason why we don't need to be materialistic is we just got to know at what point in time we're living. We're already Christ and we're already promised this inheritance. I don't need everything the world chases. I don't have to tick everything off my bucket list. You know why? Because it's all mine in Christ. 
the blessing of being able to be a Christian found in Christ ought to change our lives in these practical ways. So let's just conclude by me reminding you that you and I will forget this. Tuesday will come around. Materialism that might not seem powerful in the moment as you're imagining your inheritance in Christ will start to feel strong again. What do we do then? This is where the church comes in. This is where brothers and sisters in Christ speak truth to each other over and over and over and over and over again. You guys realize I preach the same sermon every week? It's the Gospel. It's from different texts. The whole Bible before Jesus is pointing to Jesus. The whole New Testament is pointing back at what Jesus did. And the reason why we don't do one sermon and are done is because we're dumb and we forget. And so God gives us communion to remind us. He gives us baptism as a reminder and illustration. So let's be faithful to learn the Gospel well enough that we can minister to each other these truths and live lives in the joy of the knowledge of having our union with Christ by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much. Our imaginations about the fullness of even Christ's beauty will always fall short. Father, what You have in store for us, Lord, is hard for us to think about. So, Lord, I pray that You would help us meditate on these verses we've read so many times. God, I pray that You would help strengthen our faith. That You would help strengthen our affections for You. So that when we wake up in the morning, we thirst for more of Christ. God, I pray You would transform us by the power of Your Spirit to become more like Christ, that the world might see the only hope is found in You. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.